What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. In today's episode, I am speaking with UK property developer and podcast host, Rod Turner. Now, apart from being the host of The Rodcast, his own popular UK property uh, podcast, Rod is also the person responsible for getting me into this podcasting lark. And uh, yes, that's right. Back in March of 2020, about 18 months ago, I was over in London to speak at Brendan Quinn's Commercial Property Summit. And Rod reached out to me and asked if I could spare a little bit of time to sit down with him and do a podcast. And I was very happy to do that, sat down with him and enjoyed the experience enough and got kind of interested and curious enough in it that I actually decided that within a month, the lockdown actually kicked off. And as a lockdown project, I thought, "Mm, let's, let's see what I could do with my own podcast. So anyway, the rest is history. That is not the reason I brought Rod on today. No, it's actually Rod's less well-known activities around investing and developing property in the UK that I wanted to kind of drill into. Now, as you're going to see uh, pretty quickly from this discussion with Rod, he is one of those people who does like to geek out on the financial and economic sort of details of a deal. And then indeed, best practice within the industry, whether it's diversification or all of that kind of analytical stuff and so we get into a good bit of that and what is really what I found particularly interesting is the analysis that himself and uh, I should mention Rod is in a couple of ventures with another guest of the show Adam Lawrence and Adam appeared back in episode 48 talking about all the apartment buildings that he had bought but the two of them have bought a property together And Rod goes into the detail and uh, some of the kind of the behind the scenes analysis and the deal structuring and what they did to make that actual deal work for them. And so it's quite interesting. And I think you're going to get some good value from today's episode. So without further ado, let us jump into my conversation with Mr. Rod Turner. You are listening to Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. And on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Rod Turner, you're most welcome to Behind the Facade. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's good to uh, it's good to have you on. I appreciate that you are, you know, used to being in front of a, a microphone, but normally you're the one asking the questions. So we're going to turn the table on you today. And uh, um, to put you on the spot, just to begin, um, can you give us your thirty second elevator pitch? Who is Rod Turner, and what do you do? Okay, so um, funnily enough, I'm very unpolished when it comes to all this stuff about me. Um, But I guess I I own a property investment company. I'm passionate about investment um, with a basis in real estate and real assets. So I like things that you can uh, touch and hold. And property for me is just a fantastic thing. And I'll probably go into that later. Um, And I like to look at where we can uh, make money from and get good returns with as little risk and as little effort because I'm a lazy git uh, as possible. <laughs> and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> and and I, I guess it's it's a real broad range of stuff that, that we do. Yeah. Good stuff. And uh, in the process of being a lazy guy, you, you've started a podcast. And I can tell you that it's, it's not always lazy to start a podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> I learned the hard way, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. The Rodcast. Um, we'll go into some of that today. Um, but just for the purpose of uh, giving the audience some context let's just take it back to kind of your your early years kind of leaving uh, school and going into college and stuff like that you haven't approached the property business the way a lot of people would like through trades or professionally tell us about your sort of entry into the market sure well I mean I guess it's probably you, you mentioned kind of through trades or professionally there's a third option which a lot of other people fall into it which is kind of getting that property bug buying a property normally their own home um doing it up and kind of realizing a profit and going oh okay that that worked well and, that, and i guess that's kind of how i fell into it i bought um i think it was a one-bed flat that we then converted into a three-bed flat 
um, as, as my own home, did everything wrong, bodged everything, nothing worked, had my mates living with me as I did it. And, um, and afterwards, we actually, well, I'd, I'd made a, a small profit and I thought, God, with everything that went wrong and I still came out pretty well, um, let's, let's give that another go. And I, I kind of I did it really to the point until HMRC was writing me letters saying, this is now a business despite it being your own home. And, uh, and thought, well, yeah, it probably is now. So that kind of gave me a bit of a push to, um, to, go, to go into it more on a business level. Um, there's only so many times you can kind of ups, upsize your own home, and especially if you've got kind of wife and kids and things like that. You can relate. It starts, starts to become a bit difficult. Um, and so I kind of moved into doing developments, um, small scale developments, obviously, to start. Kind of just grew organically, really. So doing your, your typical kind of house to flats and, uh, and then conversions from commercial buildings and into kind of new build stuff. And, and that kind of... As, as we went uh, along, built some great partnerships, started doing some more exciting things involving modular housing, involving kind of mental health housing, a bit more specific, started to, I've always had kind of a good brain around finance, really, um, and started to really understand um, sort of sec securitizing income and how powerful that could be. Um, and some of the things that could be done around that and, uh, and the ways in which to add value to property not just from kind of physical uh, creating kind of uh, increasing the square footage for more pounds per square foot or more euros per square foot uh, compared to how, how much it costs you to get there, but also things like structuring leases in a specific way, uh, changing use classes. Being resourceful. Yeah, just kind of understanding that property is about location, use class and tenant type and how you can and tenancy type as well and how you can kind of structure all those different things in different ways to add value um and, and it's uh, not always clear straight off the bat no yeah. no it's not and um and it's about kind of i guess having a really open mind when you go into a deal and um and a lot of people kind of when i speak to them complain that there's no deals around and things like that and how do you get deals they've got to be off market and all this stuff and I'd say the majority of things that I end up getting is, is, is on market, but I'm looking at it as, for something that it's not being marketed as. Outside uh, the box thinking. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I think that's where you can, you can often kind of, um, you can often pick something up worthwhile, really. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the background into property. Before, before kind of property, I, I ran a security company, um, had that for, a, for about 13 years, um, for the last five years of that, I mean, my time was 5% on that and 95% on property. Um, and so they kind of built in tandem, really. Um, Is that because the, the profits from the security business went into creating a portfolio or was it just... Um, do you know what? It probably was more about what I enjoyed and was passionate about. I never really liked the security business, if I'm honest. Um, I wasn't passionate about it at all, but it... It, it, it paid a, the bills. Yeah, it was a bit of a cash cow. Um, it was very stressful and property there's something just so satisfying about seeing a property in the flesh that is not in use or not useful and not particularly nice and turning it into something that is useful and is appreciated by people there's I mean there's a sounds cheesy but that's kind of the, the passionate element that I can really get excited about. Don't get me wrong, it's not easy. It's incredibly stressful. But the feeling of satisfaction that you get from, or I get from that, is just massive. And, um, and that's what kind of drives me to do it. I mean, even this morning, I was in a design meeting at a site, and it's like, it, it gets my juices flowing, kind of just looking at it and thinking, oh, great. I've never, I've never particularly been a creative kind of person. I know you've got a background in architecture and, I'm good at kind of looking at spaces and kind of imagining what it can be, but in terms of like design, things like that, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm nowhere where I should be in, in those terms, but yeah, that's, that's, I guess what I, what I get out of it. But I, I never held a property. I mean, as an investment, it was always development. I always wanted to sell, never wanted to kind of to deal with tenants. Um, until Is that still the case today? No, no. So that changed in around 2014. And the reason that changed was really down to the market I was operating in. So I'm, I'm based in London. 
uh, prior to kind of 2014, 2015, it was, like I said, buy and sell developments in London, kind of normal. It was a hot time as well in the market. Yeah, wasn't it? well, and that's, that's the reason. And it got to that point and it was just, I was struggling to justify pricing. I was struggling to kind of look at that second exit. Um, it, it was very, it was kind of, it was uh, reminders of 2008 were coming in in terms mm. of, kind of how things were being priced. Did I want to take extra risk? And I just thought, do you know what? Rental stress tests changed at that point as well, which really probably had the biggest impact actually on my decision making. Because suddenly it went from, okay, now it's extremely difficult if we can't sell units. What are we going to do? How are we going to refinance? And the number one priority was, how am I going to pay off my senior debt? Um, or my debt <laughs> that's charged against the asset. How am I going to do that? As these rental stress tests have changed and we're in London where kind of yields were fairly low. Um, and so that just forced me to kind of go, do you know what? I've got to change my priority here in terms of, looking at the exits and now putting a putting kind of first place exit on how can I refinance to pay off my senior debt rather than sell um and that kind of led me to other locations because outside of London yeah yeah so it was I had three choices really in my mind it was okay I've got a skill set because everything I do, I'm looking at, right, what's my skill set? What's my edge over the market? If we talk about investment, you're talking about, right, how to get alpha over the market because otherwise what's the point? Just go and stick it in a, a REIT or a fund. Um, and I was kind of, um, I, I looked at it as, right, okay, I've got that edge. My edge is, I suppose, in the operation, getting the deal done, the development side of things I was okay at. Um the location wise, I knew the locations very well that I was operating. So that was an edge. Um, and I thought, right, I can either change use classes, like what I'm doing. I was doing a lot of residential at the time. I can change locations or I can change kind of the end user tenant type. Um, and I thought, I thought about all of those things. And I, I, I explored first kind of what can I do in terms of changing the tenant type and that's where I suppose kind of a lot of the securitizing income um, sort of plays and asset management plays started to come in and started looking at actually kind of forward funding models and, um, and what we could do for back then it was kind of we were very specific about mental health housing. I mean, it falls under kind of the whole social housing brand. Um, but it was looking at that. How could we get kind of the end user contract signed up and then we could bill to order really yeah um, risk yeah exactly um so that was one way the other way was moving locations to where actually rental stress tests wouldn't affect um that issue because yields were a bit higher so right. i kind of made the choice okay let's let's start looking out of london um and where i wanted to to look for i, I always look for capital growth um because I'm a developer, development, well, at that time I was a developer, development is incredibly risky and um, there's all sorts of unknowns that come along during a development that are out of your control and so I want a buffer, I want that capital growth buffer and um, and there's lots of people that always kind of say, no one's got a crystal ball, no one knows about capital growth and kind of my response to that is, you're in the investment game, if, you don't, if you're unable to forecast then what are you doing here? I mean, no one's going to kind of arrest you for getting it wrong but you have to take a view yeah um, you're gonna come up with a hypothesis at the absolutely, outset yeah absolutely, absolutely. And, and my kind of route to this was we were looking at residential stuff and it was always based around okay um house prices based on affordability not the typical stuff that kind of the papers all print about kind of i don't know your earnings are x times house prices because really affordability isn't isn't based on that so much these days because first-time buyers buy with large mortgages. So it's more around kind of interest rates. It's more around um, what percentage of people's earnings go on mortgage servicing. So length of um, length of a mortgage is a huge one. So you can get 40-year mortgage, whereas, I don't know, 30 years ago, 20 was the norm. Yeah. Um, so that's spreading the cost, and that, and that creates a, a massive difference. So I kind of looked at one where I felt was affordable, um, and had room for growth in affordability metrics. And two, where I felt the average household kind of income was going to go up because obviously that affects affordability. And 
for that, we were looking at, right, where's demographics um, of kind of young professionals? Where, where are they going to be moving to? Where are their salaries going to be moving to? Where are kind of jobs coming out of London where those salaries are going to be the same, possibly higher than, than other regions and, and those jobs moving to other regions? Um, where's there a lot, a lot of infrastructure projects going on? Um, that's going to create kind of more jobs and more incomes. And um, and that kind of led me to Manchester, um, right. or more specifically Salford, Salford Keys, where you had kind of the BBC had announced a lot a big move and things like that. So started heading up there to look at kind of doing what I was doing down here, which is building kind of, I don't know, small SME kind of development schemes. And I went up and had a look and quickly kind of realised that actually I had zero edge up there compared to everyone else. I didn't know location really well. I couldn't build as cheap as a lot of the developers up there. Um, and really, like, the, the build costs were a big factor because capital values were lower than London, but my build costs were really coming in not that far off from what I was paying in London. Um, and so... I thought, right, I can't really do new builds up here. It's not going to work for me at this point in time. So the focus kind of went more onto conversions um, and started doing a few of those to hold. And um, and then it was kind of a bit of that in Leeds, um, moved down to East Midlands. And it was kind of just, it was following the market where I felt there was going to be some benefits of that market kind of capital appreciation to buffer all the mistakes that I would inevitably make. And, um, and, and I think that's I think that's a key thing to to kind of recognize in yourself is a lot of people they kind of um, they have this rosy tinted glasses on and they kind of think that oh this is going to be great I'm going to do brilliantly but as I learned in 2008 to my kind of geez to the pain uh, and suffering that I went through it's like there are times when the market just catches you off guard and uh, how do you sort of prepare. I mean, you kind of, it seems that you've already accepted that you're going to make mistakes. Do you do anything in particular to kind of prepare or hedge your bets just in case you've got your hypothesis wrong? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. So I will always factor that my hypothesis is wrong, <laughs> I think, from the outset. And it's looking at, right, what is out of my control here? So things that are out of my control, planning, okay. I can't justify timeframes in that. Uh, labor and material costs increasing. So from a development point of view, there's three main factors that you've got to do kind of a sensitivity analysis on. And that's your, your market price going up or down when you when, at the time where you're going to sell or refinance. It's the bill costs going up or down. And it's the timeframe increasing or, or decreasing, which inevitably affects the bill cost as well. Um, or finance costs, at least anyway. So all of those things really are kind of outside your control. You can mitigate them to a point with really good planning and, and kind of design and and, uh, and kind of being organised in terms of build schedules, in terms of getting watertight contracts and that sort of stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, that's that's the industry we're in in development in the UK, and it's 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 that, tricky. That's that's why we get paid the big bucks. Yeah. Well, you'd hope <laughs> yeah. because because it it's a form of investment. It comes down to right, you're chasing returns, okay. And if you want the, those big returns, then one of two things or two of two things is normally going to have to be sort of factored in, and one is t is uh, risk, and the other is effort. Yeah. So if you want to keep increasing those returns, are you willing to increase the amount of risk you're going to take on, i.e., in our case, probably that debt? And are you or, or and are you willing to increase the amount of effort you're going to put in in terms of these are direct investments we're making? Yeah. We are our own asset allocators, our own asset managers, really to a point where it's on us. So how much work are we going to do? Are we in control of all those moving parts that we can be in terms of kind of design, operations, marketing at the end value, um, analysis of the market that we're going into, all these kind of things that probably you don't ever think about when you go into a development. But these are the things now that I do look at in order to try and kind of mitigate those problems and um and you and you talked about kind of doing things to hedge against it and i think this all comes down to kind of i'm going to be really boring here and talk about risk and um and kind of 
what we do to mitigate those. So in terms of risk from a, a theory point of view, I guess you can talk about three main things to mitigate or ways in which to mitigate risk. You can you can talk about diversifying and that's looking at things that are uncorrelated to what you've already got. You can talk about hedging, which is going into things that are negatively correlated to what you've already got. So that's things that I'd know if one asset price moves up, the other goes down in a proportional way. And then the third is insuring. So you're not stopping the risk from happening. All you're doing is passing kind of the responsibility or the cost of that onto someone else for a premium. And I guess it's just what I tend to do is I look at what we've got. And rather than going, I'm going to diversify, hedge or insure, what I first look at is what's the risk that I'm concerned about. And I think this is where some people go wrong. They just look at the asset and go, actually, this asset normally moves in a particular way. Therefore, I'm going to choose to diversify, hedge or, or insure. What I tend to do now is I look at, right, what are the risks that I'm, I'm concerned about? What are these particular risks? So it might be, again, I'm going to use really sort of terminology like idiosyncratic risks. Are they asset specific? So I don't know if you've got two houses on Acacia Avenue uh, and one has a pain in the ass tenant in it, um, then that's going to be an idiosyncratic risk that's specific to that, um, that asset. So, right, just by buying another one, you're going to diversify, you're going to reduce risk because the risk is not is not kind of industry-wide. It's not on residential, it's not location, it's not tenant. Specific to that asset, that yeah. tenant, yeah. And then you've got systemic and systematic. They use these great words that sound exactly the same for two very different things, which is always helpful. Um, and it's looking, right, what are the risks I'm concerned about? So, I don't know, it could be interest rates going up. Okay, right. How's that going to affect what I've got at the moment, my portfolio? And is diversifying the best way? And if I'm diversifying, I need to be diversifying to other assets that are not going to move in the same way when yeah. affected by an interest rate rise. So by diversifying through, I don't know, um, FTSE 250 shares equities is probably not the best thing to do and it's probably not really diversifying because they're correlated they are, the yeah. same way that the um in which uh interest rates are going to affect them so it's thinking right let's first identify the risk we're concerned about and then let's identify how we can actually do something that's not going to be affected by that risk or it could be hedging and is going to be um negatively affected or positively affected by that risk in the, in the opposite way to my portfolio or obviously insuring and it is there many but like, just using that example uh i mean because i nowadays it seems that everybody every portfolio manager out there and everyone who has some capital of their own is thinking about this kind of stuff and is starting to diversify and so taking if you take a look at the entire market pretty much everyone is investing in the same sort of bunch of assets. And so therefore, if there is some sort of event happening over here, it will negatively correlate with everything. In, in well, it, it depends is the answer. So, I mean, you could say, right, what's going to be, and, and look, it's all well and good us saying this stuff, but it's inevitably going to be the risk that we have never thought about that comes to bite us in the backside. So, I mean, you look at what, what effects might a pandemic have? <laughs> yeah. Well, nobody it. saw the house price rises the yeah. way they have. It's well, quite insane. Yeah. Exactly. So it's what assets are going to go up and down with that. Interest rate rises. Okay. What assets are going to go up and down with that? It's it's understanding like not all these assets will move in the same way. In the same way, you can take one asset class and look at that at those specific kind of assets and be like, which ones are going to move? If you take equities, for example you're still going to have ones that will move in different directions depending on what happens. So I think, and this is kind of where I, I constantly have arguments with IFAs about property, who kind of have this preconceived idea about property. And it's just such a broad market. I mean, you talk about, mm. when you talk about the property market, are you talking about residential houses in prime London? Or are you talking about logistic sheds kind of, in uh, in the in the middle of Britain, like they're, they're two different markets, and and they operate in very different ways. And they're yeah. like you look, at, you can look at offices regionally how they've been affected versus prime offices 
And you would have thought, right, prime offices in central London would not have come out of this pandemic well, yet they are trading on the lowest yields they've ever traded on. That, yeah, it is hard to, it's yeah. hard to kind of understand the thinking, but it does seem like we're in this kind of growing kind of bubble insofar as, you know, 2008 came along out of nowhere. Nobody saw it coming really. I mean, you could predict in 2007 that something bad was coming, but nobody saw it in 2006, we'll say. And yet uh, it happened and we all paid a big price for it. Now that we've been, you know, more than 10 years kind of looking at asset prices rising and stuff, you start to kind of wonder at what stage does it turn? Like, is it going to turn? Are you in any way expecting some kind of a turn? It's funny. I, I had this, uh, I had this back and forth on over LinkedIn with Adam and uh, Adam Lawrence, uh, who was on this podcast as well, by the way, um, after I'd heard him speaking on your podcast. So Adam is very, uh, gets right into the detail and, and he yeah. seems to think that, you know, residential is going to continue going very strongly and, uh, and I kind of, I think he's probably right, but do you see some sort of a hand grenade coming into the market that, you know, at some point in the, in the near future? I mean, residential is very much affected by affordability. And if you look at kind of what can affect that affordability, you're looking at really two things. You're looking at wages and then you're looking at servicing the debt. So wages going up, we are starting to see that. Servicing the debt, I mean, interest rates are likely to go up. Um, when? Probably sooner than we thought six months ago now. Um, but how's that going to affect mortgage rates that are not necessarily just based on base rates? Um, they're based on swap rates. And actually, we're starting to see, even though there's a lot of expectations on base rates increasing fairly soon, we're still seeing mortgage rates reducing mm. as the kind of they're, they're chasing that um every, every, there's a lot of capital in the world at the moment chasing and it's, yeah. and it's chasing yield and actually for those banks and lenders if they're borrowing even at one percent and lending at 1.5 percent that's a healthy margin if you've got a couple of billion quid get, getting lent out yeah. so i do i mean i don't think it's going to be kind of like a straight line going up that way i think there's going to be a bit a bit of volatility but i also think you've got different markets everywhere so mm. i mean we can talk about the uk as a whole but like even if you look at what what i don't think it is i don't think there's a bubble at the moment if you look at kind of prime london which i think i can't remember the exact stats but i think it's something like makes up of 18 percent of the value of residential property in the uk okay is is in i think it's three boroughs in london which is wow. just insane um, but if you look at kind of those markets, they're down since 2014. Yeah. That's sort of seven years they've actually been going down and down. So that's the opposite of a bubble. They've been moving downwards and, and in real terms even further. So there's an argument, actually, when you start comparing those to other assets that you, you could compare to historically, um, I don't know, you could... UK bonds, um, other different types of fixed income, actually, they seem quite quite cheap in those terms. Mm. Um, so it is it is hard to look at. I think I think when we look at it, you've got to be quite specific. I think if you're thinking, are interest rates going to go up, going to affect things? <sighs> yeah. there's, defi there's definitely yeah. inflationary pressure. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I, think, I think they will affect things. But I think the real key question is, Will wages and the proportion of, of wages going up keep up with that in terms of what the servicing costs are for a mortgage? And I think the answer is they will, but not at the same time. So I think what you'll find is that you might get some interest rate rises. That will create a bit of a shock to the system. And then wages will start to catch up and then it will shoot up. And then you might get that interest rate rise again and it will kind of happen. So it will be in kind of peaks and troughs but I, I do think the direction of travel will continue probably not at the speed that it has for the last kind of year I, I don't know it was about eight percent uh kind of growth in the UK last year I don't I don't think it's going to go in that yeah but I do think it's going to be an upward trajectory whether that's I don't know two or three percent people will say well that's not even keeping up with inflation no but if you look at people's equity and how that will grow 
that will keep up with inflation. I mean, if you, if for example, you've got a seventy-five percent mortgage, and uh, and the and the growth is two percent, then the growth on your equity is actually eight mm-hmm. percent. So I think in in those terms, it it will. Um, the other things to look at in terms of kind of how will there be shocks in two thousand and eight, like the, the the different markets acted very differently. So London. Um, acted very differently to say Northumberland um, and that's really about the values and the amount of equity that's held within those properties um, often in the market the, the pace of which the housing market goes is centered around sort of first-time buyers coming into the market but we can't forget existing homeowners and mm. uh, I mean 30% of properties in the UK are owned without a mortgage so 30% wow that yeah. is a that's an interesting stat yeah it's quite a lot and it's actually bigger in london where values are higher which is which is also interesting and this is the baby boomers i guess yeah yeah yeah, exactly and so there's going to be a shift of that wealth kind of coming down to people um so it's going to be it's going to be interesting seeing how how different kind of parts of the country react to some of these shocks that come along you mentioned something earlier before we 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 started recording about um running a bowling alley and uh, you were saying, so you clearly you're, you're prepared to roll up your sleeves um, and, and get involved in the operational side of things. So can, can you just talk a little bit on that? Uh, I mean, just to make, it, to make an asset work, you're prepared to get in and actually run the place. Yeah, I mean, as, as I said, kind of if you, if you want the better returns, you've got to be prepared to increase risk or effort, in my, in my view, um, unless you're incredibly fortunate, um, which I'm not. So I think... Um, I think that was the case. It was like the opportunity came up to buy um, a, a large kind of commercial mixed-use site uh, that had several different kind of moving parts. So it's got um, business park on it. It's got um, it's got an a, a entertainment centre with bowling alley, sports halls, soft play, that kind of stuff. And so we looked at purchasing that, and this was really kind of an asset management play. Um, actually, I, I own it with Adam Lawrence, who you had on the podcast, you mentioned, yeah. So um, we, we, we got this uh, along with another partner called Ross Harper. Um, and we looked at this. Initially, it was brought to me as a development opportunity, um, but I didn't really feel it worked and actually felt it worked better as an investment. And um, really, we looked at how can we increase the value of really the income because that's what it's all about it's how it's the reliability of those future incomes we can get from the asset and uh, and everything kind of comes comes back to that um and it was okay we we saw that things were being underutilized underlet um they weren't being managed particularly well so that was a great one and then whereabouts is that located in the east midlands in derbyshire right um and so we we kind of thought right that's a great opportunity for a value add in in quite a short space of time we can get in there we can run it slightly differently to increase the income coming there and the other thing that just really appealed was what's the barrier to entry of other people doing this and we were buying it below what its reinstatement costs would be and so really that was quite a a driving factor in our decision to go ahead with it because we were looking for someone else to come and take customers from our from, from what we were doing, they would have to build something up because there wasn't anything like that in the area. And to right. the cost of building it would would really... Would Take all the benefit away, yeah. yeah. So we were, we were comfortable that we had decent market share um, and it was really just about improving our, our net operating income, really. And, um, and we did that through structuring leases differently, um, through very simple stuff. I mean, we had the business centre was... I think the market rate for uh, rents was something like £30, £35 a square foot. And, um, and, and these rents that we had, we had people in there for, that had been there for seven years and never had kind of their rent part. Um, and they were paying kind of £12 a square foot. So oh, wow. it was yeah. like, there was huge margin in that that kind of hadn't been looked at. Um, and simple stuff, just like giving everything a lick of paint and new carpets didn't cost the world, but the difference you've got back in rent was huge. And that it, multiplier then on the valuation. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then structuring the leases differently. So where we had, I don't know, 38 tenants all paying the investment company rent, we then 
structured a management company and so they would pay the management company and the management company would just pay one rent um, to the investment company. And obviously the lenders like that more. It's it's less things to underwrite for them. It's okay, can you structure that lease in a way where it's rather than having everyone on licenses, suddenly now you've got one lease paying you, I don't know, 80 grand a year um, for 10 years with no breaks and going upwards, only rent reviews and things like that. But where's the control of those parts? And the management company takes the little risk on their being leases and short term. And and at the end of the day, we we own the management company too. So if anything happens to that, we can then create another one or or structure it in a different way. So it's about about understanding, I guess, how lenders and valuers look at it too. Um, That's a big factor. Um, But also... Again, it comes down to how reliable is that income going to be um, from the view of the marketplace? Um, because that's what, I don't know, your pension funds, your, a lot of your private equity will, will, will want to get into. Do you, um, presumably you've brought investors in to, to acquire that? Um, that? That one we didn't. That one we kind of self-funded. Okay. But we got a good rate on the, on the, on the lending on it to purchase it and um and we're currently going through a refinance at the moment so right okay it makes sense so yeah we were able to the, the great thing about that is we were able to service the costs kind of monthly as we go from the existing income whilst increasing the income through kind of just like you say rolling hands on yeah and getting into it so um it, it was great fun to kind of be involved in that project because from a developer's point of view the asset management is something that we don't get involved in that often. So it's, it's, it's always really interesting. Unique. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've done smaller kind of versions of that in the past. Um, with a hair salon, for example, where, where we did that, which is really interesting. It just goes back to kind of how you can create value on paper through kind of just restructuring leases and, and making that reliability of income for the future more secure. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, interesting, yeah. Um, in terms of, I just wanted to kind of segue into something, your, your podcast, The Rodcast. Um, Creative it's, juices were flowing that day when we showed <laughs> The Rodcast. Yeah, it's great. No, but uh, it, was, it was actually the first podcast I ever uh, appeared in. So thank you for that, Rod. And uh, you, uh, you kind of introduced me to this market, and uh, and I've uh, I've enjoyed it very much. But you've had a lot of guests on over the last couple of years, and uh, and first of all, I wanted to kind of understand uh, what was your motivation in in setting up the broadcast. So, look, I guess a bit of ego, <laughs> um, if I'm if I'm completely honest. Um, I probably like the sound of my own voice, as you might have guessed. <laughs> not being quiet. Um, but it was really, I was having some fantastic conversations with some really, really interesting people that you didn't hear from a lot. Um, and it was just through kind of work, through the stuff we were doing as, a, as an investment business and development business. Um, and I was just in a really fortunate place to be able to be having these conversations and then I would kind of go into forums and things like that and you'd hear, a totally different kind of um, almost property industry. And it was like, well, hold on a minute. This, this is kind of like the tiger king of property. is It's not real. And, and this is a real small proportion. Actually, the real industry is out there. And I kind of, I wanted to bring that to the foreground, really, of what is going on behind the scenes and some of these people that a lot of people probably would never have heard of in the industry that are doing fantastic things. Um, and I just thought there's got to be something in this. If I can, if I can record these conversations that we're having, one is going to keep me informed and up to date, which it absolutely has done. And, and that's been fantastic. But two, it also kind of forces me to continue having these conversations rather than me kind of just doing it as and when they pop up. It's okay, let's 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 get some in the diary and, and what gonna be active, yeah. Yeah, and make it relevant as well. So um like I don't know, social housing's a big thing. So we did something with an impact investment fund recently, which was great. Um so it's it, and, and I learned huge amounts uh from it. So um that was kind of the driver in it. I am the worst person when it comes to any form of tech 
setting it up i had no clue it was a nightmare the first episode sounds like we recorded it in a bathroom together uh because we, we recorded it at the uh the guy's boardroom on a glass table and it, it's just this horrible echo despite it actually being probably one of my favorite episodes um and yeah so i just i I thought, okay, let's let's do this kind of getting out of my comfort zone and all that, and it's it's just been great fun. I mean, there's no there's no. It's, it's very rewarding. I can I can speak from my own experience. All right, and uh, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to ask you because I've been sort of looking through. I've obviously listened to a number of your guests, and Adam being one that uh, stands out. And I asked him to come on after uh, after I heard him on yours. But in terms of you know, you're at episode like 55 now by looking at, at the information here in front of me. I mean, tell us some of the the more kind of uh, the, the insights that have really kind of like changed your mindset and kind of opened your eyes a little bit that you you kind of you were living in a sort of in a different world until you, you had that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, one great one recently um, was with Ben Puddle. Um, who they he he is a co-founder of a private equity firm that specializes in real estate and um and something that he just said about kind of the management team being so much more important than almost everything else and i kind of you, you hear a lot of cliches along the way but this like the way he drilled into it just really brought home he was like you can be in a crappy market and still come out on top if you've got a good management team but if you've got a crappy management team and you're in a good market, you're not going to beat them out. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and it was just like the way he put it, and I know, I know their management team and they are excellent um, and they've done some absolutely phenomenal deals. And it just kind of drove home to me the importance of of people really and and their skill sets. and, and kind of A players, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so that was great. And another one... Um, like I said, the first episode, a guy called Jason Tracy, um, who owns uh, a company called Beemore. Again, just an absolutely fascinating story um, of his career and kind of what happened. Again, apologies about the quality of sound if you do listen to it, but stick with it. It is a good one. And just understanding kind of a lot of it from from lessons learned, um, what a lot of it was what's happened in 2008 to people. And um, we've interviewed a few people who, who really kind of got to breaking point um, on there. Another one was um, Paul Roshan, who, who, who did lose everything in 2008. Um, and uh, and his, his story was just, it just drives home how risky things can get when you, when you kind of start taking things for granted in terms of the market and what you're doing. And it's, it's hard not to do that when things are going well. Um, yeah. I can speak from experience. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. Well, you, I mean, you get complacent and you kind of think I've, in my case, I can remember, I, I, I thought at one stage, I, I remember having Christmas dinner with some friends and they were saying, okay, Gavin, you know, because I was kind of always out doing doing stuff. And they're like, Gavin, what have you done today? Go on, tell us, tell us the news. And it was like, oh, I've just gone and borrowed, you know, all these millions and whatever. And they're like, you know, what would you do if you won the lottery in the million in the morning? And I kind of said, I'd probably go out and like leverage it up two times and go again or whatever. And we were kind of joking about this. And I was really blasé about debt and about leverage and i can remember kind of thinking that yeah you know i don't really give a sh you know i couldn't care less about how much debt i have you know it's just because i know i'll just make more money from it and then you know fast forward five years and i was millions negative and i can remember just thinking to myself like what planet was i living in that i was actually this blasé about having these huge obligations around my neck you know but i think do you know what that and, and that's I guess recently I've started to think about property in a slightly different way um, from a lot of these conversations that we had. And it's about understanding that kind of property, almost looking at it not as an asset class, but just as a vehicle for investing. And it's, it's an amazing thing because unlike other asset classes, it, it acts as kind of 
you can make it act as long-term fixed income. You can make it act as a commodity in terms of its use and utility. You can make it act as private equity in terms of the equity that you're going in and leveraged up. And there's no kind of right or wrong way to do it. I mean, there's, there is a few wrong ways, if we're honest, but there's, there's no kind of right way to do it. It depends on what the investor wants. We've spoken to kind of real large institutional real estate funds that look at property now as a long-term fixed income. So they're looking at it and comparing it to other sources of income. They'll buy billions in, ca in cash and they won't leverage at all because their needs and their wants and their risk profile is very different because they're at that level. Whereas you talk to other individuals and a lot of people that invest directly in property and development, really they fall into that rather than needing the fixed income part of a portfolio, they fall into that private equity part. And actually, which is fantastic and you can make much bigger returns, but again, there's risk. much risk to take. And that goes back to your thing of, oh, I'd leverage it up. And look, we've all done it. We all, we all, we all talk about it, but it's, it's, it's understanding, I guess, from a personal point of view of where you are in your kind of investment career in terms of, I suppose it comes down to portfolio construction. What proportion of your portfolio do you want to act as equity? And out of that equity slice, how much of that equity do you want to be public, i.e. out in the marketplace? And do you want to be private, i.e. investing in your own developments, investing in your own portfolio, leveraging up to get maximum return? And how much do you want to be acting as that long-term fixed income? Um, and at what risk? So that's kind of your, your buy-to-lets, your commercial portfolio, and what kind of risk level do you want on that? And, and I think it's really interesting when you start to break it down. And what you'll normally find is a lot of it depends on your age, how much wealth you've got to start with, what yeah. your portfolio is, kind of dependence, what your skill sets are, what your energy levels are like, because private equity does involve a lot of kind of energy and effort, as we've, as we've kind of discussed. Um, and, and, and all these kind of other things and, and also the values, because let's face it, if you've got, I don't know, 10 quid in the bank and you risk kind of your, what you're actually risking is losing 10 grand, but you a young free single can go and get a job, then it's not going to take you a million years to kind of earn that back and be back to where you were. Whereas if you're risking 20 million pounds and you're getting on in life, yeah. What it's not so easy. Are you yeah. making that back? So I think, I think the trap people fall into is they do really well when they're focusing their kind of investment focus on the private equity element of what they're trying to do. And again, you can bring it all back to pro property, um, but then their position changes, but they don't change their outlook in terms of how they want to construct their portfolio in terms of fixed income, risk, private equity, and do it an element commodities as well so um yeah i think i think that's a that's an interesting point but yeah going back to your question about insights that would probably be number one mm. just understanding people's stories is just i mean it's always great we do a bit of a mix of kind of content like heavy content on certain specific things such as i don't know supply chains contracts for kind of development things like that right through to tax and structure and then the other part is kind of listening to people's stories and learning from a lot of it from from people's mistakes and uh and yeah there's been some absolute brilliant ones in there from from people from across the board really so well, i'm going to put a, a link in the notes through to to the broadcast so that people can can find it and uh, and give it a listen as well right I'm, I'm looking at the time there just conscious of of uh, of your time can you just uh, one of the questions i like to ask my guests is uh, you know, you're you're of a similar vintage to me now, and you've got a good few years in your belt under your belt. And looking back to when you first started out, like what advice would you give to, to your 20-year-old self if you were? I I would say um go and work in the industry for a bit <laughs> to, to get an idea of how other operators do it. And then when you go on your own or start to go on your own, you can do it on the side, but Prove the concept, prove what you're doing works, okay, before you scale up. 
don't start scaling up, taking on leverage before you've proven that what you're trying to do is a viable investment. And like, for example, people like WeWork and things, all these people didn't do that. They didn't prove actually the model works, the model's financially viable. And you often find people are going into their next thing before they've, I don't know, exited one and proven it. And this time they're going to scale it up. And I just think that's very risky. Mm. So I'd say probably that would be the one proof proof of proof concept it's a good it's a good point and it's it's funny one of the things that i've heard people say and it seems to be this kind of i think people call it hustle porn or something like that where there's this whole thing where guys are out there oh yeah i'm a serial entrepreneur Um, but serial entrepreneur means that you're doing things in tandem you're trying to run two or three businesses in tandem what you want to be is you start a business you sell you exit you make a ton of money and then you start a new business instead of being sort of spread so thin across the board. And Definitely. Uh, I used to be a bit of a jack of all trades in property and sort of master of none, as they say. And, um, and I think absolutely there's a time where you've just got to focus and go all in um, yeah. thing and, and make it really good. And then I think, I think people diversify way too early on the whole. Or way too late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the perfect uh, that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah point yeah. in time. So um, I, I think that's a great point. Yeah, definitely. Great. Well, Rod, it's been really great uh, chat. Uh, I enjoyed very much. I, can you just give us, if, if anyone wanted to reach out and find you, what's the best place to go and look for you? Well, uh, probably LinkedIn, uh, Rod Turner. So yeah, get on there and have. Okay. A look. Yeah. I'll put a link in the notes as well so people can find you and drop you a line or whatever. All right, Rod, great to see you and uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you enjoyed it or found it useful, please take a moment to leave a review over on iTunes or indeed share it with a friend. This really helps the podcast grow and reach more people. If you have any questions, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media under my handle, Gavin J. Gallagher. And you can stay up to date with all the projects I am working on by joining my tribe. Do that by adding your name and email over on my website, gavinjgallagher.com. That's all for now. See you back here next week. Mm